0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Praise be to you, Lord Christ.
1: Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing. And acceptable to you. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, I began my sermon with Travis Kelsey. And then yet again, the business plan for him to become world famous worked. And he went out and had an incredible game in the AFC championship and the Chiefs won. He was the guy there in the middle of the field holding the trophy with the confetti falling, kissing the girl. And his girl is the girl, the most famous woman in the world. So can you imagine if the Chiefs win the Super Bowl next Sunday and Taylor Swift is there? Uh, do you know how f- far of a flight it is from Tokyo where her concert is the day before to Las Vegas? 13 hours. Do you know what Taylor Swift's favorite number is? 13. And do you also know what, uh, how many NFL games that Taylor has attended this year? 13. And the game is on 211 and what's two plus 11? 13. And this is Super Bowl 58. It's five plus eight. Thirteen. The game also is being played against the 49ers. So what's four plus nine? Thirteen. And the 49ers are the number one seed in the AFC or the NFC, and the Chiefs are the number three seed in the, in the AFC. So put them together, 13. And what does all of this mean? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Except millions and millions and millions of dollars for the NFL, as well as for Travis Kelsey. Will it satisfy Travis Kelsey? Will it make him truly happy and give him all that he is seeking after? I don't know, but I do know that there's this well-known quote about celebrities. I've heard it for years, various books, articles. It's by Cynthia Heimel, who wrote for a magazine called The Village Voice, New York City, uh, years and years ago. And she says this because she she knew many celebrities before they were famous and after they were famous. And this is her observation. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they worked, they pushed. And the morning after they became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for That's something that was gonna make everything okay, that was gonna make their lives bearable and was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and they were still themselves. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and giggles merrily when you realize that you want to kill yourself. It's quite a quote. That part about God giving us what we want sounds very similar in some ways to what Paul says in Romans 1. And here in our gospel reading this morning, fame continues on from chapter one, which we looked at last week, into chapter two as a major thread and theme, as well as a sense of urgency. Mark's gospel is the urgent gospel, especially at the beginning. Throughout it, but especially here, everyone is in a mad rush to get to Jesus because they have needs, undeniable, urgent needs that they think that Jesus can meet. So what need is most urgent for you right now? Where is the urgency in your life? And what is most urgent for Jesus, especially here in this passage? Three points this morning, the crowd, number one, the epitome, and then thirdly, the riddle. First of all, the crowd, it's quite a dramatic scene here in Mark chapter one, this man and his four friends will stop at nothing to get to Jesus. And we have to assume they tried everything else before they do what they did. They certainly tried pushing through the crowds. Maybe they tried asking nicely for people to let them in, like some of you do when you're trying to merge and you roll down your window and ask the person next to you to let you in. I never do that. I just cut them off. But maybe, (laughs) maybe they, they shouted at them, but nothing worked, evidently. So they climb up on someone's roof and they tear a hole in it. And I've always wondered what the homeowner thought of this. Peter was probably the homeowner, by the way, because back in chapter one, they're at Peter's house. Here in verse one, we read that it's Jesus' home. We're probably to think and to read home base for all of his ministry. But regardless, there's a sense of urgency. And this is a sense of urgency that we all know, a sense of urgent desperation. And some of us know it very, very well right now. And we can relate because we're sick or we have a loved one who's sick or injured, similarly to this man. I've thought a lot about Cooper Sayer this week. Some of you know him. He's a UT student. He was a part of our summer fellows program last summer. He went to Regents. He also went to Hyde Park. He's very involved in Young Life in Westlake many of you know him. Some of his good friends are here this morning. And you know that earlier uh, in the previous year, late fall, he was in a horrible car accident, almost died. He was in a coma for over a month and had multiple surgeries on his body, his head, his face even. Now he is awake and beginning the incredibly long path back to health and to normal life. And Alyssa and I read his parents' caring bridge. And the Sayers, I don't know them. I know Cooper, of course, but I've heard and can tell that they're devout Christian people and their posts are so very inspiring and all too often very, very raw with emotion. And every day is a struggle for them, for Cooper. And I can imagine, because I know them, several of Cooper's friends doing something very similar to what these four friends do for this man and trying to get him before Jesus. And they have to do this. It says, because of the crowd, That's the phrase in verse 4. Do you see it there? Because of the crowd. It's Mark's first use of these words. We need to beware of the crowd in this gospel, but also in our own life. Mark mentions them in almost all of his stories. The portrayal is never positive. It's never even normally neutral. When he uses the word with an indefinite article, the word a, like a crowd was gathering, he's it's so much more neutral and he's really just describing a scene, but anytime he uses the definite article and says the crowd, he's doing far more than just describing. He is commentating on a particular type of people in their response to Jesus. And, and we see this here. We see that their most common response is what Mark says at the very end where they, he says that they were amazed at Jesus. And we hear that and we probably think of it in positive terms, but it's, it's rarely positive uh, for Mark. It doesn't mean knows Jesus. It doesn't mean trusts him or follows him or believes in him. It's a word that is, that is filled with a sense of confusion. And more often than not, it just means entertains or titillates or astounds. And so very often, as we saw last week in chapter one, Jesus leaves the crowd behind and goes off by himself or takes the disciples with him. He certainly teaches the crowd. He works really hard here and throughout the gospel to teach them. And in in chapter eight, Mark even says that he has compassion on them and feeds them in the famous feeding of the 4,000. But all too often, Mark says things like this about the crowd, that the crowd pressed in upon Jesus, presses in upon him, Uh, Like in chapter five, when the woman who has this discharge of blood reaches out and secretly tries to touch just the hem of his garment so that she can be healed. It says before that she was pressing in upon him with everyone else all around him because the most consistent characteristic of the crowd is that they want something for Jesus. They're chasing after him in order to get something from him, some miracle, or to be astounded or amazed by him. But in the end, their amazement ends. Can you guess how the crowd ends with Jesus in this gospel. It's all the way at the very end in chapter 15. It's after Jesus has been arrested and, and the crowd comes up three times in that chapter. The first time they're asking Pilate to release a Jewish prisoner because that's the Roman custom at Passover to release one. And then the second time it's mentioned, the the Jewish scribes and religious leaders, they stir up the crowd, not to ask for Jesus, but to ask for Barabbas to be released, who's this murderer and insurrectionist. And by the end of the chapter, end of chapter 15, what's the crowd doing? They're shouting out for Jesus to be crucified. And in the end, in the gospel, as throughout the gospel, the crowd always gets what they want. Just like that quote, from Cynthia Heimel about celebrities or about what the Apostle Paul says about Adam and Eve in Romans chapter one. In the end, the crowd always gets what they most urgently ask for, but there's always this lingering suspicion that what they ask for is not what they actually need. So, are you currently getting from God what you most urgently demand, and are you sure it's a good thing? Are you a part of the crowd? And that leads us to the second point, the epitome, because it's the epitome of the crowd. And with this early story and this man, this paralytic, Mark is setting us up to understand the crowd as we read on in his gospel, because this paralytic is the epitome of the crowd. So imagine the scene, roof is torn off. it's a massive hole in the roof. There's a, a shaft of light shining through with all this dust and debris filling the air. And, and the friends are up top, panting, sweating, trying to hold their breath because it's pin drop silence for everyone. And then all of a sudden, Jesus's eyes meet this man and he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And what do you think he thought? What do you think these friends thought? What do you think they might've said, at least under their breath or to themselves? Maybe something like, whoa, whoa, whoa. wait a second, Mr miracle worker man, we didn't come here and tear off this roof for for you to talk about forgiving sins or any of this other spiritual stuff, which is all fine and good, but that's not why we're here. That's not why we tore this roof off. Everyone can see, we can all see that our friend has a far more urgent and important need than the forgiveness of his sins. And here, before everyone, Jesus says to them, no, he doesn't. And we shouldn't underestimate how offensive this would have been. Just put yourself in this paralytics position. Put yourself in Cooper Sayers' parents' place. If I was in that place, I'd be offended. I'd probably say something like, how dare you? How dare you, Jesus, with my son lying here before you physically broken, and you have the audacity to talk about sin, even and especially to talk about his sin. It's as if Jesus is saying, to this man and to all of them and to us, you don't know what the main problem of your life actually is. You think it's your broken body, but actually it's your broken soul. In other words, what's happened to you or what's been done to you isn't your greatest problem in your life. And I know that you have problems. And I know that you're suffering and you've been hurt and you've been the victim of all sorts of things that weren't your fault. And I'll get to all of those eventually, but you need to know that none of that is your deepest or greatest problem or your most urgent need. Jesus is pressing this man deeper and through him, everyone saying to them all that what you most urgently desire and demand from me isn't enough. You need to ask for more. You need to ask for something deeper and greater. And so is that offensive? Of course, more than anything else, this man wanted to walk again. You probably imagine if he could walk again, everything in his life would be well. He'd be able to work again. He'd be able to take care of others rather than just being taken care of. He'd be able to get married and have a family. He'd be able to walk up the steps to the temple and go to worship and make a sacrifice and thanksgiving for all that the Lord had done for him. He'd, he'd never be unhappy again. He'd never complain again because he'd never go anything through anything like this again and everything would be right. And he'd be happy and wonder, I think we have to ask and wonder, would he, honestly, would he really? Just give it a few months. Give it three months, give it three years, enough time for other problems and and other needs, not as big as this one, but other ones, real problems, urgent needs to settle in. And give it maybe even 30 years and this man is back on his bed, not paralyzed, but old, sick and dying. Then how insensitive does Jesus talking about the forgiveness of sin sound? Remember that Cynthia Heimel quote, that giant thing they were striving for that's something that was always going to make everything okay that was going to make their lives bearable that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and they were still them this man walking or paralyzed would still be himself with a far greater need than legs that don't work because a walking man with a broken soul still isn't whole and the greater grace would be to be a forgiven man reconciled to God with broken legs. And most of us here aren't like him, not exactly. And it's easy for me to say things like that standing here before you. We're not like him, we're not like Cooper Sayer, but we are still like them nonetheless in some very, very real ways. And that is that we have things We have a thing that we think if we just get this fixed, if this just gets answered, this unending demand, if Lord, you would just give me this or fix this or end this or overcome this for me or for someone else, then everything in my life would be well, and I would finally be who I'm supposed to be. We all have something like that. In fact, we can't. All too often, our life is just one series of this thing to this thing to this thing that we think, if we just get this, then everything will be all right. And the reality is, is whatever that thing is for you, that's your God. In that moment, in that season of life, that's your functional savior. And the way in which you can know if it is truly that is when you don't get it, what do you do? Do you just end up like the crowd in chapter 15, flipping on God, shouting at God? Casting him as far away as you possibly can? Because I really do think that that's all of us. It's always all of us, especially when we first start coming to Jesus. We start coming to worship or we start reading the Bible. Or we start talking to one of our friends about Christianity. Or we start going to Bible study and we're almost always doing it, saying exactly what this man is. And what we're doing and saying is like, this is my problem. And if you just fix this, then I'll follow you. And Jesus all too often says and does exactly what he does here. And that is he pushes us all deeper because reality is that we're all the epitome of the crowd. Even those of us who have believed in and followed Jesus for a long time, because we're never not fully the crowd. We always have something, some very real urgent need that is not actually our deepest and greatest need. And to some degree, we always want what isn't God's greatest gift. And he has to change our hearts. He has to change our hearts to want something more and deeper and greater. And that's what he's doing here with this man, but with us all. Which brings me to the final point, point three, the riddle. Jesus reveals that in and through this riddle, which we find here at the end of this passage in verses nine and verses 10, where he says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise, take your bed up and walk. And Jesus says this, especially to the religious leaders because he knows that they're furious with him, murderously furious, because the punishment for blasphemy is death. And he has, according to them, said something blasphemous. Blasphemy is just saying something untrue about God because only someone who has sinned against someone can forgive that sin. And and this man hasn't sinned directly, against Jesus. He's he's never met Jesus before. This is their first interaction. And so for Jesus, never having met this man and to walk over and say, your sins are forgiven, who can say such a thing? Either a crazy person or the creator God and the scribes and the religious leaders know Jesus isn't crazy. And so they know what he's claiming to be, that he is claiming to be God and not just God generally, their God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, in the flesh. They get it right that this statement of forgiveness is far more just a statement of forgiveness. It's a claim to be God himself, to speak for God and be God. And it wasn't any accident. He didn't just kind of slip up in his words. It was very intentional. In fact, we read that it said in response to him, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he says this, which is harder to forgive or to heal? And what's the answer? Well, there's two answers, and they're both kind of right. You and I can forgive someone who sins against us because what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is not exerting an equal amount of pain or dishonor upon the person who has hurt or dishonored you. Very simply, it's not hurting them back. It's not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It's not justice. But if you don't pay them back, if you don't make them hurt and they've hurt you, then who alone hurts? You. And so, can we forgive? Yes, we can forgive. It's not easy, but we can do it. Can we heal people? Can I heal someone? If I could, we could wrap up that capital campaign really quickly this morning. But I can't, and we can't. So, one right answer is that it's easier to forgive or to at least say that someone is forgiving than to miraculously heal. But what makes forgiveness easier? What makes it even possible? Do we think that it's easy to forgive? Have you read Macbeth? The the play, Shakespearean play Macbeth? Some of you are nodding your heads. You haven't read that. Not at least since high school. None of us until we were forced to read that in high school. But we probably remember Lady Macbeth's most famous line from that play. And what is it? Out, out, damn spot. Because she's lost her mind. And she's, she's lost it under the dress and the terror of guilt and unforgiven sin because her husband, the king, is responsible for murders and the weight of that guilt has unhinged her mind. And so she walks around the castle at night in this daze and this stupor, muttering this phrase, out, out, damn spot, because she sees imaginary spots of blood on her hands that she can't wash off. And the point for Shakespeare and Lady Macbeth and for Jesus here in Mark 2 is that sin is indelible. Do you know this word indelible? You know what it means? It comes from the Latin word deletus, which we get our English word delete. Very modern sort of definition for us. It just means it can't be deleted, all sin, any sin. It leaves a mark. It leaves a spiritual mark upon our souls that cannot be deleted. So Lady Macbeth is crazy, but she sees clearly the spiritual marks upon her soul and all souls. She sees this indelible mark of, of her husband and her, her house's sin on her hands, and it's crushing psychologically. And we would be the same. If any of us could see all of the spiritual marks of our own sin on our bodies, it would be equally crushing. I remember when I was in seminary one day, Jerem Barr my professor. He said something that's stuck with me ever since, 20 years or so. He said, if God were to reveal all of your sin all at once right now, it would crush you. Just like Lady Macbeth, under the sadness and the shock of its weight. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't reveal our sin here or all of this man's sin. He uses this this word rise. Do you see it in verse 10? It's repeated also in verse 11 and verse 12. And with this word, Mark is signaling something with this particular word, because he uses it again at the very end of his gospel. In chapter 16, verse six, the third to last verse of the gospel, an angel tells three women, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Go tell his disciples. It's the same word. And with it, Mark is signaling that even here in chapter two, the shadow of the cross is already falling upon Jesus because in order to forgive any sin, God himself has to die. We're going to sing a hymn here in a few minutes. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus because it's impossible to forgive sin. That's how hard it is. As impossible as making a paralytic walk to truly and fully remove its guilt, God in the flesh has to die. That's what he's saying. When he asks about forgiveness, when he's saying this man's forgiven, he's saying, I am God in the flesh. And in order for me to forgive any sin, in order for any of you, to forgive anyone their sin, I myself, as God in the flesh, have to die. The only reason that he can raise this man up is because he's going to lay himself down in death to bear the punishment for this man's spots, and your spots, and my spots, all of them. So again, listen, as I close, your greatest problem in life is not what's been done to you, it's you. Your greatest problem in life is not what's been done to you, it is you but God loves you. He loves you more than you will ever be able to fully comprehend or imagine. So regardless of who you are, regardless of what you are, regardless of what type of person you are, a moral person, a religious, church-going person, a quote-unquote good person, a person who has no sordid past or hidden past that you're terribly, you aren't terribly afraid that people find out or know about, or if you are that person, someone who has morally failed massively, if you're someone who, if we knew everything about your life, we would never call you quote unquote good. Or if you're, you're not a religious person, never been in church before, regardless, you are the same before Jesus. And he says the very same thing to you. If you would believe in him as God and his savior died for you, rose again for you, if you would believe in him, then these first words to this man are his first words to you. Son, daughter, not slave, not servant, not screw up, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. There's nothing more urgent that he will ever say to you than that, nothing more important. So this morning, do you believe these words? Do you believe in fact that they are true, that they even could be true? If your sins are so heavy and burdensome for you this morning, do you really imagine that your sins are somehow greater than the death of God the Son? Or if you don't imagine that your sins are all that weighty or or burdensome. Remember my, my seminary professors thought that if God were to reveal everything about your sin now, it would crush you. But he hasn't crushed you. He has been crushed for you. He has died for your forgiveness to cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. So your greatest gift And your greatest need, his greatest gift has been given. Your greatest need has been met. You are forgiven. So rejoice, regardless of what it is that you face right now. And all of those things that you face, all of those other needs and issues in your life, keep coming to God with them because he will meet those needs. Even if it's a a physical illness or injury to to the significance of this man, even that, Whatever it is bodily that you deal with, someday it will be healed. Even if it's only at the resurrection of the dead, your body will be made whole. Cooper Sayers' body will be made whole. Or if it's a sadness or a brokenness because of a relationship that's lost, embarrassment over a divorce or or something along those lines. It's a failure in life, a failure in business, financial woes, or a broken relationship with your child, or a longing for a spouse. That even will be satisfied, or some shame over some past wrong that you've done, or some wrong that's been done to you, some abuse, some manipulation, some deceit. The Lord will deal with it all and will heal it all. So do not stop Praying for those needs, your needs or the needs of others. Like these four friends here, continue to tear the roof off the Lord's house with your prayers. But as you pray, pray with gratitude and true amazement for what you have already received. Your greatest need has already been met because your sins are forgiven. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We do pray for the grace necessary to believe these words, your very words, the words of your son, and for us to believe in him, to trust him, to turn all of ourselves, all of our life over to him, and with gratitude to go forward in life, trusting that your love is truly incomprehensible, but given to us in and through all that Jesus has done. We pray this in all things in his name, amen.